you take your Bibles this morning and turn over to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. If I were to ask you the question this morning, what is your passion in life? For a lot of people, yesterday would have revealed their passion for football. The playoffs, of course, tonight, and uh, etc. Their passion, sports. Some, their passion is basketball or soccer. Uh, had some friends growing up, fishing uh, being a passion for them. Some have hobbies. Uh, some of you, your passion is maybe a young lady or a young man. Uh, that you're trying to get to know and uh, spend time with, uh, uh, etc. So when we look in the scriptures, if you go to the New Testament, what was Paul's passion? I count all things but loss for what? The excellency of the knowledge of Christ. How about David? What was his passion? You know, he says, as the deer pants for the waters, so pants my heart after thee, O Lord. So his passion. And I want us to look this morning at Moses uh, here in Exodus chapter 33. And the text verse is going to be verse 18, where Moses, it says, and he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Now, to get the background here, I want us to notice the predicament that Moses was in. Now, if the Lord appeared to you and He says, I'm going to send an angel with you. And He's going to go before you and He's going to defeat the enemy and He's going to bring you in uh, to the promised land and fulfill the promises that I have given unto you. What would be your response? God says, I'm going to send an angel with you. Well, when you look at the other statement that God made, look, if you would, there in verse 2 of chapter 33, I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite unto a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> but notice the next statement. For I will not go up in the midst of thee. For thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Now, would that be a predicament if God says, I'm not going to go with you? Now, that would be concerning. Even though God says, I'll send an angel with you, and we know one angel can slay 185,000 Assyrian troops. So, I mean, that would be great. But if it was at the risk of losing God's presence, would it be worth it? Not for Moses. Because later Moses says, Lord, if you're not going to go up, I don't want to go. Moses was concerned about God's presence. 
Moses had walked with the Lord. He had seen, you know, God manifest his uh, power, not only in opening up, you know, the Red Sea, providing the manna uh, for them, then his majesty there at Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning, the, uh, the fire. Uh, we read in another place where uh, the elders saw then the magnificence uh, of the Lord. But here God says, I'm not going to go with you. Now, what, was, what had happened back in chapter 32, while Moses was on the mount in God's presence, receiving uh, the Ten Commandments, what was taking place in the camp? They built a golden calf. They were worshiping the golden calf. So Moses comes down from the mount, sees what's taking place, and casts the Ten Commandments down and breaks them because symbolizing the covenant they were breaking. They were not worshiping the Lord, their God. They were worshiping an idol. And so God says, this is a stiff-necked people. And I'm not going to go up with you. So now Moses is in a predicament because he's got two million people that are complainers and gripers. And if God doesn't go with him, he doesn't want to go. And so he goes to the Lord. God says, build a a tent outside of the camp because they don't deserve God's presence in the camp. So Moses goes unto the Lord outside the camp into the tabernacle. When God says he'll not go up with them, the people respond, verse 4, when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on him his ornaments. For the Lord had said... Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment, consume thee. Therefore now put off thine ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. Now the ornaments, what was it that the golden calf was made from? Some of their ornaments, the earrings. So put away these ornaments And they showed repentance and mourning over uh, their sin. Moses then goes unto the Lord. Verse 11, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Then verses 12 to 17 tell us some of the conversation that takes place between Moses and the Lord. Moses was concerned God's presence naturally represents God would speak to Moses as a friend. Face to face, not mentioned concerning anyone else. In the Old Testament, that was the close relationship that Moses had with the Lord, and he didn't want to lose that relationship. Lord, if you don't go up, 
I don't want to go up. If you'll notice there, verse 15, he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. <clears throat> now, how concerned are we with losing God's presence? I mean, you don't want to go into ministry if you don't have God's presence. You don't want to go to the mission field. You don't want to pastor a church. You don't want to deal with uh, uh, young people. You don't want to teach in a Christian school if you don't have God's presence with you because you'll be an utter failure. You've got to have God's presence. And Moses' passion, we see here in this passage, is to have God's presence and to know the Lord. And so God tells him, uh, then, verse 13, Now therefore I pray thee, if I found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. God said to him, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. God also tells him, verse 17, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. That is a personal, close relationship that God has with Moses. You found grace in my sight. So Moses then replies, Lord, basically, if I found grace in your sight, and if you will go with us, show me thy glory. I want to know you in your essence, in your greatness, in your magnificence, Show me thy glory. Would you pray that prayer today? God, show me thy glory. I want to know you. Your presence, the essence of who you are, that I may go forth and be used of you because I know who you are. And so God says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Do we deserve God's grace and mercy? No, but aren't you thankful God chooses to have grace and mercy? And so he says, you can't see all my glory, I will hide you in the rock and I will pass by and you can see my hinder parts, the afterglow, you might say. <clears throat> so here's the predicament that we've seen. But in chapter 34, we see the proclamation that God gives us. I'm going to proclaim my name. I'm going to show you who I am, what my character is, what my attributes are, that you may know how wonderful and magnificent and great uh, that I am. So look over in chapter 34, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now this is God's answer to show me thy glory. God's glory is manifested in His name, which represents who He is, His attributes, His character. So then, what does He proclaim? The Lord, Jehovah, the one who enters into covenant 
with His people to be their God and for us to be His people. And then He says, The Lord God, <clears throat> merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and the fourth generation. So let's go back and look at these. Merciful uh, here. The word merciful and frequently translated full of compassion. It comes from the root word for the womb and the love of a mother for her baby and even used of fathers as well. Psalm 103 verse 13. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. Over in Micah 7.19, He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 78 verse 38, But He being full of compassion forgave their iniquity. Aren't you thankful God's full of compassion? He's merciful. Therefore, God did not destroy Israel when they worshipped the golden calf. Moses prays for them. And God, we see, is full of compassion, mercy. We know when we look in the New Testament, time and time again it said Jesus Christ was moved with compassion. And He healed, forgave, and so... God reveals to Moses, I'm full of compassion, merciful. The second word here, gracious, which would be similar to the word grace in the New Testament, that God gives us what we don't deserve, that He works in our behalf. If we all got what we deserved, we'd all be in the lake of fire now, wouldn't we? But see, God's gracious uh, here. He's merciful. He's gracious. Then it mentions long-suffering as well. You know, it's interesting because, you know, Hebrew is a picturesque language. You know, Greek is more of a, you know, language of ideas and other things. And, uh, but in uh, Hebrew, you get a lot of uh, picturesque. Uh, slippery is the idea of something that, like a bare, slick chest. Long-suffering literally means long of nose. Now, it's not referring to Pinocchio, <laughs> where the long nose represented lying. In Scripture, long of nose, the, the nose or nostril symbolized anger. And so, a horse fuming and prancing in, in anger and the term used for God's wrath and anger but when it says slow to anger or long suffering a long nose that it takes forever or quite a while for him to ever become angry aren't you thankful God's long suffering that though we have failed, though, I mean, look at his long suffering with Israel. 
Then when you get later in their history, how many years God was long-suffering before He sent them into captivity, even though He had warned them for centuries. We know in the New Testament, He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So He's long-suffering. Then He continues, abundant in goodness and truth. You know, when, when you look at God's attributes, the idea of abundant is there's, you can't exhaust God's mercy. You can't exhaust God's goodness. You can't exhaust His love, uh, His long-suffering. But here it's used in reference to the word goodness, which is translated loving-kindness, translated mercy. Uh, if you've taken any uh, Hebrew yet, the word kased, probably one of the most important theological terms in the Old Testament. And so it's used over and over again in Psalms. It's used over 30 times where it says His mercy, that is His goodness, His loving kindness endureth forever. There, Psalm 136, every verse ends with the phrase, for His mercy endureth forever. It says He's abundant in His mercy, His loving kindness, His steadfast love, His faithfulness. You, you don't have any one word in English that could translate the fullness of this uh, Hebrew word. And it's a covenant term that God has entered in to a relationship, into a covenant. For us, we call it the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, you had the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, and so God had entered into a relationship, and being a covenant term, He will be faithful. He will love according to His promises. Uh, he will be steadfast, always dependable, abundant, in goodness and mercy. Did Israel need that? Yes. In their stiff-neckedness, in their rebellion. And so Moses has prayed for them. In these three chapters, Moses prays for them four times. And God responds there. And part of telling him says, I am a God who is abundant in mercy and truth. The word truth, that which is reliable, steadfast, dependable. So in reference to God's Word, in reference to God Himself. Truth never changes, does it? It's always reliable. God is always reliable. It's, that word is used in reference to God's Word on numerous occasions. Psalm 19, this word is true. And then Psalm 119 in several instances as well. So abundant in goodness and truth. And then verse 7, keeping mercy. Keeping, preserving, holding on to, guarding. But the word mercy is the same as the word goodness. That word kased. The only word that's repeated showing that this is the center. This is what is so important then concerning the Lord. He's abundant in goodness or mercy and He always keeps it. He never fails. 
And he shows this then to thousands. It's not limited. He showed it to Israel in Moses' day. He shows it to you and me in our day, doesn't he? That he keeps mercy, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his loving kindness to thousands, to thousands of generations, to thousands of people uh, as well. And so, and that he will not clear the guilty. So that was the proclamation. Now, this proclamation becomes so important that it's quoted numerous times in the Old Testament. David quotes from this verse on three different occasions in uh, the Psalms. And so let me just kind of refer. In Psalm 145, he says, The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. In Psalm 85 or 86, verse 5 and 15, David says, For thou, Lord, art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. Psalm 103, verses 8 and 12, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgression from us. During Hezekiah's day, he challenges the people to, especially those from the northern kingdom, to turn to the Lord because the Lord is merciful and gracious. That's in uh, 2 Chronicles 30, verses 8 and 9. Joel, when he's challenging the people in his day, chapter 2, verse 13, rend your heart, not your garments, turn unto the Lord your God, for He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. In Nehemiah's day, when revival set in, and the Levites are recounting what God had done over their history, and the many times of rebellion, of refusing to go into the land, of offering the... Uh, building the golden calf. They said, The people refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. Nehemiah 9, 17 and 31. Then there's one other instance. Jonah quotes this verse. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, we know the story of Jonah. God says, go to Nineveh and preach. And what does he do? He goes the other direction. Now, why does he do that? Well, he tells you in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, 
Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. He says, God, I don't want to go preach to them because I know you're merciful and gracious and forgiving, and if they repent, you'll forgive them, and I don't want them to be forgiven. I want them to be destroyed. So he goes, runs the other direction. But see, they all knew this great truth and revelation in Exodus 34 and verse 6 that our God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abundant in goodness and truth. He keeps mercy and He forgives. Aren't you thankful He forgives? He lifts the burden and casts it uh, away. So that's the proclamation that is made to Moses here. And so let's look finally at the product. What happens as a result of this revelation? In verse 8, we have praise. And Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. We have prayer. Verse 9, And he said, If now I found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us from thine inheritance." God reveals Himself, so Moses claims that truth. Lord, then will you forgive uh, the people? And then we have God's promise, verse 10. And He said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all thy people I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. That is an awesome uh, thing. Now, that's grace, isn't it? That's mercy. That's forgiveness. God says, I will forgive, and I'm going to do a great and a marvelous thing in behalf of my people. All of grace uh, here. But there's one other thing that takes place. If you look at the end of the chapter... <coughs> verse 29, it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him, and Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. Verse 33, till Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But every time he went into the presence of God, his face began to shine. And when he came out, he put a veil over his face. But here's what I want to emphasize here at the end. When he went into God's presence, when he saw God's glory, God's glory was manifested in his life as he walked away from seeing God's glory. 
Now, are we spending enough time in God's presence that when we come out, others can see that we've been with the Lord? Can our roommates see that we've been with the Lord? Can those that we work with see that we've been with the Lord? Or at church, or maybe you're working in a secular job, can they tell that you've been with the Lord? Remember what it said about the council there in Jerusalem when they brought in uh, Peter and James and John? It says they saw they were ignorant and unlearned men, but they noticed, they saw that they had been with the Lord. Moses' passion was to have God's presence and to know the Lord. To be in His presence, to see His glory, to be used of Him. And when He came out, His face shone with the glory of the Lord. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and we'll close with this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul tells us we can go into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can spend time with Him even though we don't see the full essence of His glory. The Spirit of God will change us from glory to glory. Is that your passion today? To know God's presence, to be in His presence, to see His glory and for others to see Him in you. If we spend the time with Him and walk with Him, it's going to be evident in our lives and in our relationships with others uh, as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You that we can be changed from glory to glory by Your Holy Spirit as we spend time in your presence. I pray you'd give us a passion for your presence, to know you, to reflect your glory in this world, that others may see Christ in us, that you may use us in a great and mighty way for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.